0: Hello and welcome to the Canaan Rinse Podcast. This is Volume 12, Issue 598 on Slay the Spire. Joining me, I'm James Carter, in this issue are Leah Hedu.
1: I am full of shivs.
2: (laughs) Chris O'Regan. Gonna block. Yet no, no, uh, okay, no, yes.
0: (laughs) And finally, rounding out the quartet, Jesse Fuchs. Car, car. Some uh, welcome or terrifying and uh, anxiety-inducing intros there from people. Thank you for those. (laughs) Uh, It's worth saying right up front, obviously, if we're doing sequels to games, we tend to talk about when we've covered them previously. In this case, uh, we're about to talk about how we haven't covered games like this, really, on Cane Rinse in the past, uh, in the past 597 issues. Uh, But, Chris... Our very own Chris, who's here joining us on the show, did cover it on episode 193 of The Sausage Factory, talking to the developers of this game. Um, So, yeah, definitely go and check that one out Uh, way back in the day in Sausage Factory in in old, old times. Um, I mean, there was still Internet and everything, obviously, but, you know. Yeah, it's in
2: July of 2018.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that really is the before times at this stage. There's no other, way to, is, yeah. no other way to call it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, no, uh, always worth checking out. And whenever we cover an indie game, just uh, also <laughs> Google Sausage Factory, because chances are Chris has got an episode uh, covering uh, its development and uh, where it came from and what the how, how the game came to be, basically. Uh, so, in talking about this game, we need to kind of talk about the genre. And... Normally, you know, first person shooter, third person shooter, you know, the usual stuff is quite easy. In this case, Slay the Spire kind of best rounded up as a roguelike deck building card game, which is two genres and a subgenre all rolled into one, I guess. Deck building being a kind of subgenre there. Uh, We'll get into where this comes from right now because I think we need to kind of put this in a little perspective. So we have a long list of inspirations uh, behind uh, Slay the Spire listed here, um, going back to the likes of Magic the Gathering uh, and Sid, uh, Sid Meier's um, Chandelar, uh, both from the 1990s alongside Netrunner, which, again, originally a 1990s game, um, really going back to the sort of good old tabletop card-playing games uh, of old that I am completely out of my depth talking about Uh, thankfully we're joined by at least a couple of people who have far more experience of those than I do and far more knowledge of those than I do so um, as as we'll go through this list obviously everyone chip in if there's something specifically you want to mention in relation to Slay the Spire where this comes so we already have Magic the Gathering and Chandelar um, which I I guess kind of start off uh, the deck building aspect of of Slay the Spire um, and uh and then go on to some of the next games we're going to talk about like Dominion 2008 um Ascension 2010 uh some of these Ascension and Magic the Gathering I think both have video game versions not sure about others um but obviously depending upon your your tabletop gaming experience you may be more or less familiar with these
3: well this is this is where the the roguelike deck builder comes from and what's interesting to me about it is that the deck builder, uh, that it really, that Slay the really does combine a major aspect of Dominion and a major aspect of really this very pre-Dominion uh, magic computer game in terms that, I will give the briefest possible description of Dominion, but much like Slay the Spire, it's a game where you start with a crappy deck of cards and you use them uh, to get better cards. And in Dominion's case, you're ultimately just buying victory point cards. But but before then, you're buying cards that go into your deck and become better cards. So it's sort of a pure deck building, Mobius strip feedback loop, uh, where the building the deck and the playing the game are all exactly the same thing. Whereas Slay the Spyro actually, and I don't think this was direct uh, inspiration necessarily but if you look at the old Magic the Gathering computer games uh, Slay the Spar and other roguelike deck builders actually have more of that structure of you, you have a fight, you do something you get a reward from that which is building your deck and you know these are two kind of different modes, and and you know there's exceptions in Slade Aspire where there's cards that will give you cards during a fight. You can exhaust cards from your deck temporarily, so you're you're altering your deck. Certainly some builds are about that, um, but there is this interest. Like tabletop deck builders tend to have it all be one thing, or later on, be there's this deck building component, and you're building something on a board with it. You know some some secondary mechanic. Um, and Netrunner, which is another Richard Garfield game that, yeah, comes out in 96, doesn't do commercially well, but has kind of a cult and then gets rebooted in the 2012s. Uh, I wouldn't see the direct line from that to Slay the Spire, but, uh, Anthony Giovanetti ran a, you know, one of the designers, uh, ran a Netrunner community site. And that is clearly a game that, but is, is a game that, uh, no more than any other CCG would I think of in terms of Slay the Spire, uh, because that game is very much about you, you don't know what your opponent's doing, uh, you know, it's very much about hidden information and, and the cost of gaining information, stuff like that. Whereas Slay the Spire, is, as we'll talk about a little, uh, is almost more like uh, its same years into the breach where. You know, one of his big innovations is, you know, everything the enemy is going to do and you're solving the puzzle of, well, what's the best solution to that I have at hand?
0: So some of the video games that we don't need to go into in massive detail because they could be covered or have been covered on Kindreds, depending upon the game. So um, so FTL, Faster Than Light, particularly this was mentioned um, for the structure, not the roguelike structure of the game, but literally the structure of the spire how you ascend up the spire how you move room to room uh, was mentioned as a um as an uh, an influence and it's worth saying that um the developer of faster than than light subset games their next game into the breach is not only the next keen and rince uh podcast recording and an issue that you'll be hearing 599 um but again another game where yes it's strategy sim rather than card game but does have some game mechanics that it's already been mentioned by jesse i think that there's a an attitude or a um yeah an attitude towards the the amount of information you have to hand about what your enemy's move is going to be and it is almost completely transparent in terms of seeing what's going to happen and into the breach completely transparent in this um depending upon the level of interrogation you want to do to the ui it's all there so there is a certain amount of granularity you can have of just rather than just seeing damage plus some kind of debuff, you can dive in and slay the spire and actually see what the debuff is as well. Um, but yeah, a, a, an interesting one because there's back-to-back games from the same developer that both have some kind of um, similarity in terms of uh, mechanic to um, to slay the spire. Um, the next one um spelunky uh which we have i believe covered on cane runs i haven't got an issue number down here apologies for that google is your friend um so that's 2013 game by derek Yu. another one that i think a lot of game developers cite as a favor of theirs so next in our, our list of video games that inspired this um a much more direct i think uh sort of comparison here Instead of the roguelike aspect, more the, the cards aspect. So we have Hearthstone, um, a Blizzard game from 2013. So last on our list, a game I have literally never heard of, but I'm sure that that, uh, that I'm about to be given a, a miniature lesson in the history of. Um, so Dream Quest, uh, Peter Whelan, um 2014. Um, Jesse, you've listed this as the OG deck builder slash roguelike. Um,
3: yeah. Yeah, this is an interesting game because it really Mm. was a total cult hit. Um, Anthony uh, Giovanetti and Cassiano both have talked about playing it, but they never, they're not Mm. interestingly that forthcoming about it. It only seems to come up when an interviewer specifically brings it up. Um, And it is basically yeah i mean it's funny because i i interviewed uh the guy who made it so i was auditing a class on games journalism and, and that was one of the assignments so it was a good excuse because i was really enjoying it and uh and i would really like to go back and ask myself why i called it deck builder slash roguelike instead of roguelike deck builder uh <laughs> you know coin flip but um but yeah it it was this he he ended up Working as a senior designer on Hearthstone, a strength of it, it was it was a game again, kind of passed among game designers, and it is you know you you fight uh, with a deck. the The big difference uh, to me, or at least when I first encountered Slay the Spire, was that in Dream Quest the monsters also have cards, uh, which is mm-hmm. neat but kind of chaotic. And again, you know, I feel like what Slay the Spire really does is. They they turn every turn into a puzzle you can try to solve, uh, and Dream Quest yeah you can still buy it and I still recommend it on mobile. Uh, it's you know it it's clunky and the art always looks kind of you know goofy and beta, uh, but it it still holds up and it does have a tremendous amount of variety. Richard Garfield creator of Magic said it was his favorite game in several years. Uh, you know worked with Whalen on uh, some expansion for it. So, yeah, it doesn't have its own Wikipedia entry, so it definitely deserves more uh, attention, especially because I think a lot of people do think Slay the Spire kind of really originated this genre when it's really kind of this massive breakthrough. And there were even several Dream Quest likes, like a game called Monster Slayers, Mm -hmm. and none of them figured out what Slay the Spire did remotely. They were content to just kind of mimic uh, Dream Quest.
0: Yeah, I think it's not going to be the first time and, and uh, not the last that the game that popularises the genre is often kind of cited as the originator when, of course, as we know, everything comes from somewhere. No one has this unique, crazy idea that just comes out of the ether. It all comes from the other things that we, in this case, play, but watch, you know, read, do, um and, and yeah. Uh, 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 worth mentioning because I think for myself certainly for therefore probably some of uh, our audience it's easy to kind of think of well Slay the Spire was the first time I kind of heard of anyone saying um, Roguelike Deck Builder therefore probably was one of if not the first Um, and here you know almost five years before um, Slay the Spire came out here is a, a game that clearly has a sim comes from a similar similar lineage, and therefore also Slay the Spire, um, kind of leans on as well, or builds on, I should say. Okay, so that's a potted history of the genre that uh, Slay the Spire now sits in. is is kind of one of the defining pillars of. Our first piece of community feedback from our forums, CanonRinse forward slash forum, where Jay very kindly puts up. Uh, forum threads where you can go and leave comments about all of the upcoming games for the rest of the volume Uh, there will be a refresh when volume 13 games roll around however for volume 12 for this game slay the spire alex79 says as someone who doesn't really like card games or roguelike games i thought this sounded right up my street of things i don't like so i gave it a try to the surprise of nobody i didn't like it i got it for mobile and ended up getting a refund now since trying it I have actually gotten into a few more card games and there have been plenty of roguelike games I've enjoyed. So perhaps I ought to give it another shot. So, on the development and release of this game, the developers, we haven't actually mentioned, they have the, mentioned a couple of the, the lead developers, but the actual name of the development studio is Mega Crit. The publishers, I think going all the way back to the early access, uh, was one of Humble Bundle's very first publishing um Efforts alongside Hat in Time in 2017. Um, they they then also helped with the um, the console port uh, publishing as well. Uh, but yeah, humble bundle that humble bundle that you know of back in 2017 branched into publishing, and this was one of their early efforts. Um, the engine I always think it's worth mentioning just because it tells you a little bit about where this game came from. So LibGDX not an engine I heard of, I'd heard of until uh, re- re- sort of researching this. This game. Um, it's completely open source and free. Um, it uh, is a Java framework with some C and C elements, which terrifies me <laughs> a little bit, I have to say. Um, desktop and mobile development are all under the same code base, though. So going back to some of the um Xbox indie games uh that were all done on I'm going to forget the name of the engine um but having an engine it was one of the big selling points of Unity early on was having an engine where you can develop for one platform and then more simply than usual take the same code base and and develop you know port it out to a different uh platform is uh, is a big thing for any small studio that doesn't have the funding or the expertise to be able to completely recode something for a different format so uh, libgdx did that in this case which is why actually quite quickly this game got spread across a lot of different platforms once the final release happened we'll get to that um, as mentioned the lead developers a pair of them uh anthony giovanetti um and casey yano Um, So Anthony Giovanetti, we've mentioned, ran a Netrunner community site, or still does possibly, um, and that will come up in the development notes in a second. Uh, Casey Yano uh, previously was at Amazon for five years. Um, Both Casey and Anthony um, had previously had a company called Pew Pew Inc. Uh, They'd released a Flash game and one iOS release, and just got to the point with this game where they thought, you know what, we're going to go and make a game together. So uh, Casey left Amazon, Anthony left his job and they started working on this. Um, so the only other person mentioned on the Wikipedia page, certainly is Clark Abood. Uh, apologies for any pronunciations with names here, mispronunciations with names. Um, I've only seen them written down. Um, Clark Abo- Abood, the composer. Um, so a fairly thin development team in terms of two leads and a composer. Um. that's not to say there weren't other people but as always we can't list necessarily everyone involved with the game so picked out a few key names here that you're going to hear or have heard or are going to continue hearing during the uh, discussion um, as mentioned uh, both the lead developers had worked previously on a couple of different games um, the the mention about um, Netrunner being significant is because being uh, part of the Netrunner community and running uh, a uh, uh, Netrunner website uh, meant that uh, Anthony had significant access to players who knew card games. And that meant that this game had a lot of playtesting and rebalancing with uh, parts of the Netrunner community, people from the Netrunner community, um, which in more than one instance in reviews uh, of the game in early access Um, I think is possibly responsible for the degree to which this was a pretty well-rounded and well-developed and already far-along game when it came out on Early Access. Um, There were several comments about that back from back in 2017, early 2018, about how um, sort of fully functional and fleshed out the the game mechanics already were. Um, So, Early Access, as mentioned, 2017, late 2017, it was November, started with two playable characters. A third, uh, the defect, was added during early access. Um, potions and different events were added over time. Um, there were weekly updates, as is often the case with early access. The more engaged the developer is in that, it tends to help build the community. Um, the devs did mention that they, they lurked in live streams of the game to gather extra feedback Um And uh, with with Anthony Giovanetti saying a streamer isn't going to be afraid to speak their minds or insult you. They probably don't even know you're there most of the time, hence wanting to lurk in the streams to get free free, uh, testing feedback. So release dates. uh, 15th of November was the Steam Early Access in 2017. 2019 get ready for a cascade here so a year and a couple of months after its early access release that's quite a quick turnaround for early access to be fair compared to some Um, 23rd January 2019 the game came full release on uh, Windows Mac and Linux PCs then uh, 21st of May PlayStation 4 6th of June Nintendo switch 14th of august xbox one so real quick there again talking about the engine being kind of set up to port between different um different formats has to have been a a factor i imagine here in a sort of very quick cascade oftentimes you'll see with indie games you can go a year or more before you can get a port out after the pc release and in this case no that all happened very very quickly um So, in 2020, uh, on the 14th of January, was a content update, which uh, we'll come to, extra character added. Um, That was for the Windows version. But I'm not, I think, at this point, they'd got feature parity across different platforms. So, I'm not sure if that also came to consoles at the same time. Um, And then 13th of June of 2020, so we're talking a year and a half after its full release, uh, the iOS version released. It had been delayed from 2019, uh, and and was released with feature parity with PC and console releases, and then third of February 2021. As is so often the case for us, per Android users, um, the game came out somewhat after. Uh, what's that? Eight months after uh, the the iOS release to Android. So, in a space of less than four years, three years and a few months, we went from early access release to it's out on almost everything you could possibly want to play this game on. It is quite an impressive uh, sort of scaling up of, of and rolling out of the game. Uh, from our forums again, Time for Stein says, I played this a fair bit when it was given away on PS Plus last year. Having played boatloads of roguelikes slash lights, etc. over the years, I really enjoyed the different change of pace that the turn-based deck-building combat brought to the table. Not a game I've sunk hundreds of hours into or anything, but I enjoyed the time I had with it, well worth a try. Um, I particularly wanted to include that because I had forgotten or hadn't realised it was on PlayStation Plus. Always worth mentioning because it may well be that if you're listening to this and haven't played the game, you might already own a copy if you picked it up on PlayStation Plus and have it sitting in a catalogue, unbeknownst to you. So, the reception to this game... um, We're at the early side of uh, developers passing the game out to streamers and influencers um, to get sort of early buzz going, particularly about early access games. Um, However, this is an interesting one because in the first few weeks of early access, this game was selling maybe a couple of hundred copies a day to the point where there were 2,000 copies sold in the first um, few weeks. Um, That was in November, December 2017, However, in January 2018, all it takes is a particular popular streamer uh, to uh, to pick up the game, in this case on a stream where over 1 million uh, people ended up watching it, and suddenly this game was just skyrocketed. In January 2018, it was the second highest selling game on Steam in one particular week where this stream happened. Um, By February 2018, there were 500,000 players. Um, By April 2018 um MegaCrit said there were 700,000 copies sold um which is notably um are we there yet no we're not there yet I beg your pardon um uh, we're still not near the full release so this is all early access copies 1 million copies sold by July 2018 so we're still within 8 9 months of of early access release still before full release of the game 1.5 million copies were sold as of march 2019 that's the particularly notable one um, because it was still before the first console release so just early access pc copies 1.5 million copies sold that was after uh two months after the full release on pc two months before the first console release and another notable statistic the uh, streamer mentioned uh, made the game particularly big in china And 30% of sales as of March 2019 were from China for this game. Um, Yeah, just an absolute barnstorming success over the course of a year and a couple of months there during its early access. Um, It it really was, as far as I remember, one of the kind of huge early access successes back in sort of 2018, which was still relatively sort of early access hadn't been quite as accepted I don't think at that point certainly as as it is now metacritic currently obviously lists by platform has uh, this game listed depending on platform between 83 and 89 open critic uh, just has flat across platforms uh, one score uh, which is 89 so the higher end of metacritic score um it's finally time to get to our histories um i think we've kind of covered a little bit of what kind of where we come from for this game but yeah, it makes sense I think just to give our um, audience a an overview of how much of this game we've played, what sort of history we have with previous card games and previous um, roguelikes and roguelike deck builders. Um, so Chris, would you like to, to start us off, please?
2: Yes. Um I'm not going to be that guy, but I'm going to try anyway. I think I discovered it um, because um in from my own point of view because I played it in August 2017, um, three four months before its formal release, before early access. Well, yeah. So I played it at Seattle Indie Expo, which was running at the same time as PAX West, which is while I was there. And um, I remember in the middle, because this this expo happens every year, I always go because there's always some gem you find there, and not so gem, but it's just a lovely little expo of of held in a conference center area, not conference conference room within a hotel in Seattle during PAX and um, I remember it's just in the middle of this room, and the, the monitor was kind of perched lopsided on a book, mm-hmm. and it was it wasn't quite. And it, the, the uh, I'm not sure which one of the developers was there; I can't remember. But he was be trying to sort of <laughs> jam it underneath this, trying to you know. And he he was standing there, kind of made this thing. I'm not sure that he could or not. I have a go. Just didn't know, <laughs> didn't, know. Did didn't know, know, didn't know what he didn't know what he made, and I was instantly sold because by 2017 I was very much ensconced in tabletop board games. Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Oh, I know this is this race for the galaxy? No, no, it's not. It's not like that." And and it's just, but I still love. And then I thought, "Oh, it's Dominion or it's Ascension." I aligned it to more of Ascension than mm-hmm. um, than uh, um, the uh, Dominion, but. I just really loved the the, the the art, and I was completely Ooh. drawn to it. And then, of course, I immediately invited the developers on the show of the podcast, the Sausage Factory, and they agreed amazingly. Uh, and yeah. they said they'll get back to me when things when it's more when it's out early access and stuff. And they did. I mean, amazingly, if you look at the, the, the they've already sold a million copies by the time I recorded that episode of the Sausage Factory. Yeah. So wow. it um, it was so that's for me. Really, it's a very, very long history. Um, again, I don't mm-hmm. want to be that person like, "Oh, you Chris discovered it." No, but I did. Was one of the few people that got to experience it way before most people, and I still treasure mm-hmm. that um, because it's a very special game. So that's really my history, and I've been playing it on and off ever since. Honestly, it's just sometimes it's like I've got oh, I've got ten minutes, or I've got some or I just I don't know what to play on between games or something. We've all been there. And go, oh, no, I'll have a run of Slater Spire. That'll that'll, that'll settle my brain, and I'll figure something what I'm going to play.
0: <laughs> yeah, excellent. Thank you. Well, as with all of uh, the three of you on here today, it's worth having you here, because Lord knows my history with this game is, is nowhere near as uh, extensive, so you're going to be filling in the gaps in, in my knowledge and understanding for sure. Uh, Jesse, how about yourself?
3: Um, just a quick, let, let me do a, a, I want to get you guys to guess a number. How many Steam reviews do you think this has? It is, of course, overwhelmingly
0: positive. Uh, oh, I don't, hmm. given the sales, I don't know how what that usually converts to in terms of user reviews.
2: I mean, my gut reaction says over a thousand. Yep. Uh,
0: 122,000,
3: in fact. Wow. Whoa. Yes. That's very so,
2: unusual. That's yeah. very very unusual. Because people, most people don't leave reviews when they have made positive. Most people leave reviews when they have something negative to say. People sadly.
3: uh want to express their enthusiasm uh for this game uh and roguelike deck build. I mean, what you're saying, Chris, makes perfect sense to me of just like this this genre is something where you just kind of experience it and you don't need someone else to tell you it's good. And um I came to this a little later, but you reminded me of, yeah, the the first time I played Dominion, I had no idea it was a big, important game. I wasn't that deep into tabletop. I went to this weekly group, and I actually, uh, you know, spent months making a deck-buildy game with a regular deck of cards where I didn't even remember the name of Dominion, and I didn't know. I just was like, wow, that's a really good thing. What else could you do with that? So it does feel like, not unlike the roguelike, which was independently invented at least three times like beneath apple manor is a roguelike two years before rogue uh i feel like this kind of deck builder is um like let me put this way i they have said that they played and were influenced by dream quest but it would have shocked me if they had just come up with this completely independently uh and, and yeah, my history is very simple, where it was, like, hilariously, I was vaguely resentful of this game when I started hearing all the great things about it, uh, but I had, by that point, rung Dream Quest dry, you know, I'd been, like, my go-to Subway game, uh, aside from some Michael Bro games for three years, and... Um, But I I remember saying to a person who was telling me how great it was and how much better it was than Dream Quest, I was like, well, when it comes out on mobile, I'll play it. But, like, I'm not going to lug my laptop out on the subway and then just cut to me two months later on the subway with my laptop out like a big dork. (laughs) Just being like, see, this is exactly what I was worried about happening. Uh, But, yeah, you know, I started – just playing it uh, constantly. And then as soon as I found out about the mod scene, like that was the thing that got me to install Boot Camp and log Like I would, I would log into windows only because that was the only way I could do mods, uh, in slay the spire. So yeah, this game, it just, it hooked me. And now there's, it's, it's an entire genre, which I'm very happy about. So I don't quite play it as intensely, but it's, you know, it is, uh, it, it It is the birth of kind of all of those ones that come afterwards, and it's still a game I can go back to. And, and we'll get into the mods, which is, you know, I still play the regular game because if I'm on the subway, I've got my phone. Uh, but if I play it on my laptop, it's pretty much entirely
0: mods now. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Leah, how about you?
1: So I think I came at this from a little bit of a different angle. Um, mm-hmm. So I am not typically a person who goes after roguelike games or card games. Um, I have, I have gotten into a few given the just absolute explosion of, of very good roguelikes uh, in, in more recent years, um, or I, I guess not more. Uh, it, it, it hasn't, it, it's not that they didn't exist before. It's that they are more prominent now. I think um, it, it, so I have picked up a few of those the uh, and, and, and enjoyed them, you know, but I would not say that it's a genre that I really seek out very much. Uh, and cards, I, I I wasn't exactly one of those people who were like, oh, it has cards, I'm not playing it. But it wasn't something that really attracted me. Um, so I started playing this. I actually initially did play the version uh, that that was slash is on PlayStation Plus. I I did check. It's also on Xbox um uh, Game Pass. So there's there's oh, that yeah. if anybody is interested. But uh, the original version that I played was the PlayStation version from PlayStation Plus, and I played it because uh Rich uh our Rich as uh, Leon would probably say uh had. <laughs> Picked it up also on Game or not Game Pass also on PlayStation Plus and had really gotten into it and he had me um, so we we screen share sometimes and play a lot of stuff together and I sat and watched him play a few rounds of it and I thought hey, you know this looks like something I could probably get into cut to a couple of months later and I'm just up to my eyeballs in this I'm completely <laughs> play, I'm completely wringing it dry um, I I went back and looked so this would have been dead center in the middle of uh, COVID quarantine. So it was in um, kind of the summer uh, of 2021 when Mm -hmm. I played it for the first time and spent a a significant amount of time playing that version. And then I didn't after I uh, stopped playing that time around, I didn't really go back to it until we were um, preparing to play for the show. And I picked up, or maybe I already, no, I picked up, I did not already have it. Uh, I picked up the Steam version and installed it on my Steam Deck for the commute uh, that I have to my office and um, ended up playing another significant chunk of time. Um, like I said, my extremely proud moment on, on, of my my first playthrough on my Steam Deck version uh, really was a, a good... It's, it's nice that that happened because it really stuck me back into, I'm like, well, now, I mean, I, I was just going to catch up, but now I can't stop playing it. Uh, <laughs> so I have been playing that for the past few weeks on my Steam Deck. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where I am. Uh, experience on two platforms and not really much experience in the other types of uh, games in the genre, but not, not nothing. Mm-hmm. I've got a little bit. So yeah. uh, hopefully I can chip in here and there.
0: Nice. Thank you. Um, so my, my history will be much more brief. Uh, I have played plenty of roguelikes um over the years enjoyed many of them talked about a couple of them on kin rinse i believe um but card games not often my thing I, i'm i can see even though he's not on camera i can see chris staring daggers at me um just not something you know i'm not often around people and playing um i play patience on my own i guess uh does that count <laughs> sorry chris um so this game came out and i heard a lot of buzz about it but it was just never one that i got round to uh but as soon as it popped up on the uh kind of master spreadsheet of all of those traffic lights i um i made sure to uh stick an amber on it which is our signal that we are willing to play the game um and yeah, so about ten days ago, might be two weeks ago, two uh, yeah, two weeks ago it must have been. Um, I started playing this game, and very quickly had single play sessions of like eight hours a couple of times, just kind of that sort of level of I'm just gonna sit here, Steam Deck like uh, Leah you just said, um, have it on my Steam Deck, and whilst TV's on or whatever, I can be playing, you know, a hand or two uh on the way into work my commute i have sort of an hour in the mornings and every morning for the past two weeks it's been this um so i've racked up about 26 hours worth of gameplay over the past couple of weeks and i still don't really feel as qualified to talk about this game as i think i should it's very much one of those games that the more you play the more you realize you don't know or don't yet understand or haven't seen in the game so um 26 hours, a uh, couple of clearances through the Spire with uh, the character that ended up kind of mainlining. Again, Chris, thank you for recommending that I just stick to one character and unlock as much as possible with that character before rather than spreading my experience around multiple characters. I think that was a, a big learning point for me. Um, That's a
1: good question. Um, mm. it, it does everybody have a, a preferred character?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I can I can jump right in and say I yep. I, I had... so. My best runs initially were with the Defect. Uh, once I'd unlocked all three, I kind of rotated round Hades-style, kind of one to the next with the different characters, for no other reason than just to get the experience. And the Defect was giving me my best runs, but there was something about the poison mechanic that really stuck with me, so the Silent ended up being the character I chose. Uh And ironically, the two clearances I had... Uh, were both shiv runs rather than poison runs. So so there we go. I don't know why the poison mechanic particularly stuck out to me, but uh, yeah, my character was the silent.
1: I also uh, you like the silent as a character, but for the shivs, not for the poison mm, yeah, yeah. so yeah. much. Um, I, I really got into building decks that would allow me to... Well, a particularly favorite play was to have a bunch of things that would just allow me to throw a bunch of shivs and then there's also a card that does damage based on how many cards you've or how many attack cards you've played yeah so i so you know throw yeah so throw eight or ten shivs from various sources and then play that and it just exploded things with high with high hit points yeah absolutely
0: yeah yeah i um so when you mentioned having cards that were in eight there were a couple of cards i had that were give you give me a shiv every single uh mm-hmm. turn make both of those an eight immediately please um yeah. and also <laughs> uh yeah the the cards that uh buff the shivs basically so i mm-hmm. made sure to get a couple of those in whenever i could um to to make each shiv a significant chunk of damage and then you're just stacking yeah eight to 10 per hand uh, uh, against most enemies Will just do tremendous amounts of damage. Yeah.
3: Although, then there you get to Act Three, and there is a one in three chance you see the Time Eater at the end of it, and you're like, okay, I'm going right. to have to pivot yeah. a little bit here. Because, <laughs> and that, I mean, it's in. We'll get to that, but yeah, the, the fact that there's not there's three different bosses for each. Like, there's not a huge variety. You know, you can kind of predict you know, one of these three, but they are kind of hard counters uh you know mm-hmm. whether it's powers or using a lot of cards or status effects or whatever um it's an interesting uh, strategy that not all of the progeny of this game I feel like have taken
0: yeah, yeah.
3: i seem to
1: pull the i, I think it, is it the awakened uh mm-hmm. the one that yeah i i seem to pull that one more often than the others i don't i don't know why that is but uh maybe just coincidence but that's the one that hmm. I I think I feel like I tend to see that one more than the others. Why, why does to suddenly
3: appear every
2: time you're yeah. near? <laughs> I'm gonna really put a shout out to Ironclad, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it's fine. It, it you know yeah. it's um it hits things really really hard. Yeah. And in fact, what I do like about Ironclad, and he's basically the one your, your tutorial one, uh, got a lot yeah. of fun fond, funness from him because he he trades his health. For various things like giving extra actions or setting fire to things, and it is just like it uses health as an extraordinary resource, whereas mm-hmm. the other characters tend not to do that. And is it, I find that mechanic fascinating. Is he my favorite? Probably not, but I do enjoy playing with him. I will, mm-hmm. I mean, the silent for me is because I love damage over time, I just love seeing that green bar just like yep you're gonna die now <laughs> there you go yeah you thought you're gonna attack weren't you not today and i found it very gratifying because i'm weird but i do like hitting things very hard as well so i'm glad also gets a thumbs up nice. for me
3: i'm gonna go with the watcher probably um i really think, right yeah I, yeah i like them all i i do have a thing where i kind of play them all evenly where i try to keep their because uh, i'll restart a new kind of quote-unquote campaign and you know, keep their ascension levels all more or less the same. Uh, so I, I I love all my children equally, but some of mm-hmm. them are a little less good in the first half of act one than others. Which is which is one of my when we get to our nitpicks or whatever. The it, the game can start a little slow, where you know you're going to beat mm-hmm. this stuff, but you just have to kind of do it. Uh, and when the watcher came out, you know the the rage mechanic or the wrath mechanic uh, can certainly uh, bite you in the butt, but for the first half, of Act One, you're just ending fights instantly because mm. dead enemies can't do double damage, and uh yeah, and you know uh, by that, I, I feel like that game that character became the fourth character because they're probably responding to veteran players like me, you know, and they didn't want to change the structure of the game to to speed up that part of it. But you can have characters, and the defect also is pretty strong at that point. Whereas the silent can grow to be. The best character but you've got yeah, to get there it's
0: chip damage off the bat isn't it yeah
3: yeah a lot of defending and then if you run into the goblin knob again a hard counter kind of uh mini boss you're gonna have problems
0: right well we we've uh, talked about where this game uh, came from and kind of the the long legacy that it adds to um let's talk a little bit about how the game looks and sounds um starting with the art style um Kind of the way I put it was, the backgrounds I find quite striking initially. Um, But it has a very... I don't know if it was hand-drawn, all the art in this, but it has a very hand-drawn look to it. Um, I think it's... There are some characters, particularly the Thieves, possibly, where it can look very simplistic. You can almost see the nuts and bolts of the character put together. But I think, especially for the main characters, they did a really good job translating... Kind of like the character art, the stills you see into a character model that, you know that does that thing with characters where each has their own very distinctive silhouette. I think that's something I really enjoyed about it.
2: For me it looks a bit like um papercraft, you know? Yeah. I think it probably yeah, that. is yeah. that. I mm-hmm. think they've cut out bits of coloured paper and then started like, you know, um sort of stop motion, kind of like moving them around. Yeah. yeah I can see, I see that yeah
0: um so anything about the the look of this game I guess one thing I did want to say obviously we've got the the characters the character models uh the backgrounds uh which change act to act but are uh, by and large the very background I think stays the same through throughout each act uh, itself so but we also have the cards obviously a card game each card has its own art the uh the again wants to be distinctive and striking definitely got to the point where i didn't need to look at the title of the card much less the the kind of instructions on the card just could know what the card was by by the art on it and i think that's a real strength is that no matter which character i was playing i never really got confused as to what the card was going to do based on the artwork um so yeah thoughts on the way it looks in particular
1: I think that they do a pretty decent job, for the most part, about indicating – this is a little bit different um, take on how it looks – but uh, indicating what statuses you might – you and the enemy might have um, – mm-hmm. I I think that the visual language language is pretty clear and I appreciate that as someone who is not always going to be able to read all of the nuances very easily. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's just something that I picked up on that I think is a, is a, a strength.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how about Chris? How about you? Anything in particular
2: about the way it looks? I think it's very informative and you need that. Game mm-hmm, because definitely seeing the creatures reacting and how they're building up to or cranking up to something and also the the sounds as well help, but we're not talking about it yet, but the symbology over it as well and the, the symbols saying, oh, they're about to debuff you or they're about to put some mm-hmm. armor on or something. But yeah, I just think the the, the animations, although very simple, um, mm-hmm. very, very simple, in fact, they they are very, very instructional.
3: I mean, I almost feel like recusing myself out of Stockholm syndrome of like, I have played so much of this game that I don't even know what it looks like at this point. But I do, it's very readable, although there is this interesting... It, there's a lot of blank space on the on the screen. And uh, for instance, the game designer, Zach Gage, gave a talk about visual designs that uh, is very well known, uh, The Three Reads, where he cites as a negative example of like all this inf- important information is tucked up you know, you've got all this sort of space in the middle uh, where you're just basically saying, you know, well, here's this guy and here's this other guy. Uh, and I see his point, And it's certainly not a game that if you looked over someone's shoulder on the subway and you weren't familiar with this genre, you know, you'd really have much of an idea what's going on other than someone's fighting someone and there's cards. But I think you learn how to read a lot of complex information very quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. That said, a lot of the mods that I the mods I always use are ones about UI, where you know the the tooltips mm-hmm. are colored, or it lets you know if you're about to proc, you know, this thing that goes off every tenth card or something like that. So it's a complex game. There's definitely some room for uh, adjustment there, but I think they did a an, an excellent job, certainly kind of really uh, inventing uh, this genre of you know this game works very differently in terms of that tactical part than dream quest and uh and also i do just like the way it looks uh, it does remind me vaguely of that card game ascension in that it's it's kind of generic fantasy so you get the gist of everything but it's weird enough that it's not actually generic like there's something mm-hmm. going on and it's all vibes but It reminded me a little of Steve Jackson's sorcery of just, like, being very grubby and and kind of weird in ways that aren't quite articulated. Um, But, yeah, I I very much uh, am a fan of how it looks. And I also like that uh, when you get the true ending, you unlock the beta art for the cards, which is really goofy. Uh, and you can, you can switch individual cards to having either the, uh, mm-hmm. the regular art or the beta. And I think I switch maybe one out of six. So I guess that's a, you know, I like the real art. Uh, it's not, it's not, uh, it's much better than a, a colorful sketch. Uh, it kind
1: of gives me a Monty Python vibe almost. Yeah. Like the, yeah, for sure. yeah. That goes yeah, with the papercraft uh, element. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah, it's it's uh, wiggly. I like that about yeah. it. It, <laughs> yeah, it reminds it me of like underground cartooning in the '90s. I would have read where it's it's imperfect, but but you get a real sense of a human behind there.
0: Yeah, I think it's a nice blend. Uh, particularly some of the the monsters. There's lots of eyeballs and stuff going on that it feels somewhere between the grotesque and the absurd. In in a in a really appealing way, I think some of the monster design. Yeah, yeah. is just. It, it some of it's more abstract some of the like some some of the enemies are just geometric shapes that you're attacking uh, but for some of them thinking particularly something like um the awakened has that kind of like that um kind of sad mm-hmm. almost a- empathetic look to it you know they definitely get that across in some of the enemies um whereas some of the others i think are meant to almost seem a little silly uh if uh, and if you concentrate too much on what they are that's when the kind of grotes- grotesquery of it hits me. Um, yeah, I mean and, yeah. and that's
1: that's kind of something I wanted to put in too is that it mm. this game does have a sense of humor. Like it's not yeah. over mm-hmm. over saturated with it, but like <laughs> one of the things that always makes me chuckle is uh one of the early enemies that you will frequently see is the kind of bird guys with the um with the yeah. Um, the twigs kind of in their hands, and you know they start charging up, and they say, "Ah, I, you know, my power is unmatched." And then when you beat them, <laughs> he goes, "My power was matched." Um, so you know, you you get like just little bits and pieces of it. It's not a comedy game, and it's not really leaning on that, but it is funny because it is you know a, a little bit subtle.
2: Yeah, there's also yeah. the uh, whale of when you have yes, it, right. and, and it's a hello again <laughs> and it's like no, right, no explanation
1: right. as to why there's just this whale there yeah. but no. yeah but he's, <laughs> but he's,
2: yeah. He, yeah he's, he's he judges you know oh hello exactly again <laughs> oh cheers
1: gonna give it another shot huh yeah yeah cool.
2: another go <laughs> all right? okay you Thank do you me. fella
3: <laughs> there's a lot of fun not easter eggs but things i didn't notice until many hours of playing like if you take the uh relic that makes all mini bosses elites have 25% less health they're actually smaller or the size of the chest wow. actually tells you if it's a common uncommon or rare relic there are a lot of like it, there's a lot of detail in there that is very easy to not pick up on but they're actually uh giving you information left and right uh, about stuff mm. uh so yeah it's 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 a kind of brilliantly uh a, a, a game that someone can be introduced to this genre through and like has an on-ramp uh but there's there's i'm still learning things like that 500 hours mm. or whatever in
0: so uh we need to cover a couple of pieces of uh, forum feedback here Um, the first from from bloody initiate who says i first picked up slay the spire as a gift for a friend after hearing how it worked and thinking he'd like it I then got it for myself on Xbox. Once I got used to it, I was hooked and shortly after, so was my wife. The thing I remember immediately appreciating about the game is how easy it was to learn about each element on screen. If you didn't know what a status effect was or how it worked, you could highlight it and learn about it. I remember this is also what made my wife decide to try it. She's not historically a gamer, but she watched me and thought, I could do that. I also remember immediately thinking it should be a mobile game. We played it for a long time, eventually drifted away from it, but never all the way. When it came out on mobile, we thought, finally, and bought it right away on our separate devices. It's just too good a game to not have in your pocket. We both played it to death on mobile too. She was playing just yesterday. Uh, And another one from the forum, Marco says, I've enjoyed the idea of card battling games since first playing Card Fighters Clash, right up to the recent Marvel's Midnight Suns. And I'm a big fan of different kinds of deck building mechanisms in board games. Slay the Spire was an instant buy for me. I, can th- I think one thing that those games have in common with Slay the Spire is that although the RNG can be harsh, the enemy's next moves and your deck are visible to the player. It's not perfect information, but you can see the incoming attacks and what you are likely to draw clearly as you play, and you can begin to predict likelihoods. The achievements do a good job of cluing you into the fact you can win with four cards. Infinite decks are possible, or you could ignore every relic. Yes, the RNG can infuriate at times, but the runs where you see the potential for something great and you get that 25 shiv turn are pure bliss. When I play, sometimes I try to be methodical, and when I see I'm about to lose a fight, I quit out to see if I can do it better. Other runs are whirlwind power sprints to the finish line, using my character's face to block. I'm sure there are even approaches in between. For me, this is, never, this is a never-delete game on three systems. I've yet to find myself losing interest, especially as I've barely dipped a toe into the seemingly endless ocean of mods available on Steam or the seeded runs that make my claw deck dreams a reality. So thank you, as always, for the feedback. Definitely keep it coming. We have more to come. Um, so the other aspect that we've touched on a little of the aesthetic is going to be sound and music. Um, I had a couple of points about music, but sound uh, I'm an open book on uh any particular thoughts on the sound design and the music if you like as well. I think we can probably combine them into one.
2: I'd actually really enjoy getting immersed in the world of Slay mm-hmm. the Spire and I especially yeah. love some of the creatures like giving them back to the whale. He's got a lovely yeah. Yeah. and then there's <laughs> um the cackling of the, 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 the crow man with his sticks. And he's getting hey. like, Yeah, yeah, that's not really gonna work out for you too well, is it buddy? Um and then there's other ones where there's a knight with a healer behind him, that that healer. When I first encountered that, right? Like, yeah. That's just not fair. <laughs> even though even though I played hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours as a priest in World of Warcraft. So, you know, I could have related to her, but yeah, she had to go. Um but yeah, I just found the it's very again, it goes back to the main ethos of everything in the screen is informative. (laughs) It sounds really cold, but it genuinely is. It looks pleasing, but that's not really what it's trying to do, it's trying to communicate to you, the player, what's going on. And it's not just the the visuals, it's also the sounds as well. And it's very satisfying when you're unleashing hell upon something. Uh, Or indeed, it's great when you get a series of blows blocked by you when you have rapid blows and there's good blah 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 block blah yeah nice try True. Yeah. you know it's just <laughs> it, again it does dot, 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 really really well done and the music and score is just really fits into the um atmosphere mm-hmm. so big yeah. thumbs up from me excellent thank you very much and
0: jesse to round us out before we get on to some of the uh story
3: yeah uh the sound effects are great i do when I have the music on, I really do get immersed, but I will say 90% of the time I'm listening to something else while playing it and have the, the, the music volume turned all the way down to zero. Uh It is, you know, and I think that's true with a lot of uh, the deck builders I play, where I'll have a, a podcast or some other music on, but have it going through the same thing, so I am hearing the game's sound effects and trying to keep it kind of, you know, mixed. So I am, I'm getting those, because as Chris is saying that... uh you know, the, uh, yeah, you just killed a bird because it smacked you six times, but you have shield and spikes uh, is a satisfying sound. Um, and then it's a little squawk at the end. So, yeah, two thumbs up.
0: Well, I'm about to hand over to you again, Jesse, because I put setup and then had a blank space in this. Yeah, I have in no terms idea. Of, I, yeah. <laughs> you go
3: up. You go up and you kill things and you buy things, and, and there's events where... Most of the events are not all positive, but, you know, you meet, you know, I don't know. It's a little like Jim Henson's labyrinth. Just stuff happens. And it's kind of muppety. (laughs) And grubby. Yeah. yeah, Anyone else have any
1: ideas what's going on? (laughs) So there's this heart. um,
3: Yeah, it's corrupt.
1: Yep. Yep. uh, Yep. And the whale. When you get to the top, sometimes you. Yeah. No, the whale does not like it. Um, and the the spire is the the heart's at the top of the spire,
3: yeah, and it's guarded.
1: Um, and
3: uh, uh-huh.
1: yep, you and the watcher the
3: <laughs> and the time eater know each other because anytime you come across the time eater with the watcher, the time eater says, I never liked you. Uh, <laughs> so there's like, a, there are these little hints, like, I have no idea it could go either way where they have this incredibly detailed, coherent lore. All written down somewhere that they're giving you a little hints of, or it is just, you know, they make up stuff here and there. It could really go either way, and it's it's fine. It's a it's a deck builder. Uh, you, there's not really, I mean, we'll talk about some of the progeny like Grifflands and Inscription figure out ways to incorporate story, but it's not a innate fit.
1: Yeah, I I feel like. <laughs> And obviously, this is just my opinion. I, I'm sure that there are probably people out there who do not feel this way, but I really don't think that the story is why you're here in this particular game. No, for sure.
0: It, yeah, it's just enough setup to get you going, and then it's, yeah, off to the races with the mechanics. You're fighting
1: a giant donut about a third of the time <laughs> uh, if you make it to the top. So, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Um.
0: <laughs> so. The kind of goal of the game, as we've mentioned, is to get to the top of the spire. There is a corrupt heart up there that you are bidden to, destined to uh, kill. Um, and that leads us to the endings. Perhaps a bit of an odd way to talk about it, but I think we need to to talk about the mechanics uh, sort of after this. So, uh, the endings. The very first ending... Uh, For me, it was The Awakened. I assumed that that would be the case for the first time through for everyone, but it's not, apparently. Um, So you have to beat the uh, Act 3 boss. Um, You then confront the heart, and in this weird sort of, oh, I assumed there was a fight now. But no, you are informed how much damage you've done to the heart, uh, how much cumulative damage has been done to the heart across all playthroughs, um by all players and then you fall asleep and start again um it's a weird way to finish that first ending not unlike other roguelikes where it's apparent that there's going to be more to need to do in order to see kind of true ending um but yeah it it definitely struck me as kind of like an oh not anticlimactic in a bad way anticlimactic in a I'm going to be doing this again and let's get started right now kind of way. Like it was definitely a, yeah, let's go. It's sort of way. Um, but yeah, an interesting one. And then every subsequent time your da- damage that it tells you you've done is, is the cumulative damage you've done. Um, and, uh, certainly on my second time I was not successful in defeating the corrupt heart either. I think I did 865 damage on my second run through. Um, I've seen at least one YouTube thumbnail with 999 written next to the heart, <laughs> so I'm assuming that's the amount of damage I need to do to defeat the, the corrupted well, heart. Not but... not through oh, that method. Oh, yeah, do tell. There's, there's,
3: okay. See, there's a whole, right, true ending that wasn't, it was added, I think, between the third and the fourth character, which is why the fourth okay. character, the Watcher, is not uh, included. But no, no matter that, that, the amount of damage you do to the heart in the normal ending, I think, is just your score. And no matter how right. high that is, it you you won't kill the heart uh gotcha. it, it will it will but it will unlock an ascension and even if you uh try to yeah. kill the heart and die it, which I'll get to in a second you'll still unlock that ascension and uh be able okay. to play the game on an even harder difficulty but now you've got to... if you beat uh the third boss you know if you make it to the heart with the mm-hmm. three main characters then there'll be a uh a, a set of three different colored gems uh that show up these keys that you have to collect uh and one you get anytime you open a relic uh chest it'll offer you the gem instead so you have to forego a relic uh and uh same for a bonfire to get the red one and then the green one you get there'll be an extra strong elite somewhere on each map until you beat it uh and the saddest thing is when you want to get the true ending and you're in act three and all of a sudden you realize you're on a path where you cannot possibly make it to the uh, the green elite because you just forgot and so you can yeah, you can beat yeah. the game but it's all for naught because you have the other two parts um, but yeah if you beat the third uh, boss with all three keys then you then you get to fight the heart there's a, a bonfire in a market where you, you know can stock up uh, you fight these two guardians which are these very tough mini bosses uh, there's no healing after that so if they mess you up you go in weakened and die uh and then yeah the the heart has a thousand hit points, it can't take more than two fifty a turn uh and uh every time you do anything, you take a hit point of damage that is and and eventually wow. two okay uh and it goes on a cycle of doing resting one enormous hit uh you know fifteen medium hits uh rest enormous hit medium hits, so uh having spikes, I would say. It is interesting, again, like how certain bosses are hard counters to kinds of decks, and certain decks are are better against, you know, certain endings. The one Mm. thing that really does benefit with the heart is having uh, spikes of some kind, uh, because it will take a lot of damage. And if you do that, yeah, you get the beta art. You get all the goofy old art for the cards. (laughs) <laughs> I'm curious. Do do either of you who have played Excessive Mass of the game? Do you once you unlock the true ending, do you go for it, or do you? Because I actually ignored a lot of the time because I've done a lot of uh, restarting the game and like seeing how many deaths it takes me to get to Ascension fifteen or something like that, and I just don't bother going for the heart when I'm doing that.
1: I don't. I have not gotten the true ending. Uh so that's that's I shame on me, I guess. Um but uh but yeah, I I don't know. I just I I'm I am not as much about the overall it's not quite a meta game, but the the overall um overarching um completion of this game. I just I'm I'm more about continuing to unlock things and to make the runs themselves more uh, maybe not even more easy but just more satisfying and uh more um uh what's the word i'm looking for here maybe just more uh skilled
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah now i uh, what about you chris do you do you care oh, about the true um, ending
2: well, yes i'm a big fan of seeing stuff um and that's that's really what drove me on to see that uh it's like when i was Uh, I spoke about this, I think a little bit about it, in the issue about their store where, you know, there's some of those bosses and some of those encounters were infuriating, but plowed Mm -hmm. on because I wanted to see the prologue, thank very much, or indeed the epilogue, sorry. And uh, I was very happy I did, Um, and similarly here. So just keep going and just being rewarded for the effort, and I wanted to drink it so and i'm not i don't often do new game plus in fact it's very 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 rare for me to do it but with uh with slather spire baking it into this mechanic one mm. could not avoid experiencing that because essentially that's the whole point you're all you're all constantly playing it over and over again so yeah uh i just wanted to see and it's, it's very nice
3: yeah there's well there's something right you you can't do it until you've unlocked the ascensions but there's something funny about like if you want to get the true ending you should just play the game on ascension 1 even if you've unlocked up to 20 or whatever um because you'll be you know more likely to become overpowered enough that you can spare a bonfire and so forth uh i yeah it's i think One thing that later games have really built on is a more constructed metagame. Like, it does make me think about how Hades and Monster Train uh, have much more granular versions of this, uh, where you can kind of... In Monster Train, you can really cultivate your own, you know, you can just set it at a certain level and try to do a win streak at that level. Um, There's a lot of different sort of ways to, uh, you know, rise up and unlock that's not quite as linear. And in Hades, you get to sort of you, you construct your ascension out of many different difficulty modifiers that you are picking and choosing from. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, I, I feel like it originated this form and now other people are really building on it.
0: Yeah, it's probably a uh, good time to bring in another piece of forum feedback this time from radical dog who says brilliantly, brilliantly balanced game. Each character provides multiple playstyles and relics, add different flavors to the mix. A word of criticism though, I really dislike how grindy it feels to go through 20 levels of difficulty for every character. At times, you know you've got a deck working explosively well, but if you're on Ascension 2, tough luck, buddy, you'll only unlock Ascension 3 all the same. I would rather have bigger jumps, perhaps the equivalent of going to Ascension 4, 8, 12, etc. so that each difference in difficulty was individually impactful, rather than the very slow build-up in the real game. Um, Yeah, so... I finished one playthrough with Silent and unlocked Ascension. And like Leah, I think you were saying, didn't even think to actually turn on Ascension levels. I was just focused on, well, if I play through again a couple of times, I'll get another unlocked tier for the Silent. So it very much became about that to me. But um, interesting to think about this in sort of comparison to Hades, where there are kind of like levels of... And with Hades, you can kind of turn on as many different sort of—I um, forget what they're called—but the uh, the difficulty um, options, and that kind of dynamically builds you an, the equivalent of ascension level. Whereas in this one, it is very much a kind of structured progression.
1: I don't really mind that it's structured like that. Um, I, like I said, I don't—I don't make as much use of it as I. It sounds like a lot of other people. Mm. Uh, do but uh, you know I just I get a lot out of knowing that I've made some kind of quantifiable progress which is partially why I really like that whenever you finish a run whether you complete it or not you get that little experience bar at the end that's like oh you have this many more unlocks so you know that's something that I can work towards and uh, and just know that there's there's something there that I can kind of move up to when I'm ready.
3: I guess that is once you start, uh, once you've done all the unlocks, then the only real progress mm. you would make in the game is through the ascensions. And if there's if there's any sort of, yeah. I mean, this is the this is the annoying complaint of the person who writes, you know, six thousand hours not recommended on Steam or whatever, <laughs> uh, which I have not said. <laughs> but yeah, that. Once you get to a certain ascension, the game gets narrower and narrower. There was originally Mm -hmm. only 15. They added five more for the truly hardcore players. But once you get past around 10, I start kind of enjoying the game less because it goes from being Mm -hmm. hard to kind of, crushing in a way where i have to make un what to me feel like unfun choices so that's why my you know when uh on my iphone when i'm playing the game i'm generally i've started uh the whole thing fresh and i'm actually recording in my little notes app how many deaths it takes me to get from ascension 1 to 15 Um, and then I will start over, but yeah, doing all the characters and, and generally I only die once or twice or three times in the first, like eight or nine, and then they start coming fast and furious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, we've kind of danced around mechanics for uh, a good long while now. We've talked about some things obviously in, in the rest of our discussion. Um, but one thing we kind of haven't necessarily talked directly about is the map. So, there's a really interesting path choice here. And it wasn't till a couple of runs in that I even realized you could toggle the map on at pretty much any point and just check where you are um, and started to appreciate the importance of the routes you want to choose through the map. Um, that is because you are, for each act, given a different piece of digital parchment upon which are three, four upwards of that, starting positions you can choose from, and these paths all kind of go up and converge and diverge in different ways uh, through each kind of tier of the of the act until you get up to the boss at the end of the act. Um, along those paths are um, enemies uh, that you can fight, that's a combat encounter, elite enemies, which are a tough combat encounter with a sort of named, known elite boss, Um, And then there are also bonfires, which unsurprisingly is somewhere to rest at. Thank you, Dark Souls. Um, Dark Souls didn't originate that. I'll just make that clear. I get it. I know. Um, Chests uh, where you will unlock. uh, Is it always a relic?
3: Yeah. You get a relic from getting an elite or chests or the boss or occasionally there's other ways, like events. Uh,
0: The the shops as well. You can buy them. Oh, right, right. Or buy them. Yeah. Or so his money. Um, shops is, is one of the others. Uh, neatly. Uh, shops also. Um, so plotting how you get between those things is, is important. Needing a bonfire to rest, that gives you the option to heal for 20% of your health points, depending upon other relics and things you may have. Um, uh, whether you want chests to, to increase the number of relics, or if you happen to notice you've got a lot of gold, you might want to head for a shop before the thieves nap at all um but also question marks which are which can be any number of things so they can be enemies there's a I think a 10 percent chance initially but it'll build the longer you go without encountering an enemy uh in a, a mystery room um can be shops can be events which are little um encounters i guess that do really feel like something from a dungeons and dragons or uh you know a a dungeon crawling sort of role playing game where it might be
3: you meet a weird be, guy
0: and yeah you meet a weird a, guy or there's a weird relic thing. or a treasure yeah. or something that you're going to interact with that probably has a risk reward aspect to it there, in some there's way there's a golden
3: shape or idol way. on a pedestal there don't seem to be any traps <laughs> yeah
0: exactly and uh, and then
1: the options are walk away <laughs> or trigger a trap by taking the <laughs> idol <laughs> That is something that I find really interesting is that there are some choices that seem like they, that seem very obvious, like that, that one with the golden idol. But then as you go further along, you find, you can find other places that you have a choice that is only available to you if you took that idol earlier. So it's, yeah, they they take into account that sometimes the obviously bad choice is the one that you do kind of want to take if you want to see something else later on.
3: Yeah. Oh, and the idol, you know, it gives you, I think, 25% more gold in general. So it's often, I usually take it unless um, there's some reason not to. Uh, But it's one... That's an interesting thing and in that that is almost hidden information that these things can pop up later and you don't know if they're going to, whereas all the events tell you exactly what will happen. Maybe there's a chance, maybe it's like 50% chance you get a curse, but it's never, um, you know, even the first time you do it, you do a thing and you find out if it's, you know, going to hurt you or help you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or or it'll give you uh, um, a reward of a particular tier of card, but you won't know exactly which card you're getting. But but right. you know you, you're going to get a card or a relic or whatever it might be as a reward. Um, which, again, is kind of rolling the dice. You know, I often like the certain choice, but some of these events do a really good job of making the uncertain choice seem really appealing, which I, I like. So, Act 1, 2, and 3 are structured um, the same, uh, largely, by and large. Um, there are certain tiers where you're always going to have um, uh, a bonfire or a chest. Uh, you kind of see across the route you're taking, all all routes kind of have the same um, middle of Act 1, I think, as a chest, uh, as an example. I think that's right. Um, but, by and large, choosing your route will depend on, you know, going for Elites might be a really good way to get some strong relics, uh, but obviously kind of requires you to be willing to take on that challenge so uh sort of dovetailing one of the bonuses that neo the the giant whale can um give you is that your first three encounters enemies will have 1 hp so a really common speedrunning tactic is to take that first three en- th- first three combats enemies will have 1 hp and then pick a route where you know you're going to encounter your first elite during those three uh three counters it's just a handy way to get a relic straight off the off the bat. Um, so stuff like that you, you want to, certainly I've seen more than one recommendation from speedrunners and people who play this game a lot uh, to make sure you're actually mindful of the map and it's not just choose the next option that's best for you, it's really kind of plot a route through, uh, which is why it's useful to be able to pull up the map whenever. Um, I definitely fell into the trap of thinking I was only going to get to see the map when it showed it to me, but as with a lot of the uI the information's there if you go looking for it so in terms of uh bosses we've mentioned that each act has one of uh three different bosses you can encounter i don't think we'll have time or I don't think it's necessarily helpful to go through each act and kind of discuss every single boss, but are there particular bosses? I guess I will not say that we dreaded seeing uh, I think that's possibly the more interesting question to ask so um yeah, just is—is is there one that you really didn't um, didn't want to see at the end of your end of your map, um, Chris? Let's go to you first.
2: Yeah, the hexagonist can go do one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's the first one. It's really quite difficult, especially if it's the first act. For me, he belongs in a second, but he's not. Mm. He's 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 eager, and when he's just sort of fires up, he's 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 fire around the. And uh, hurls you at the second. Of the, if he basically, and there's definitely a general school of thought. Don't let him fire twice. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. then yeah. just don't let it happen. It, if you can, if you get, if your DPS is high enough, just do everything you can, everything you can to stop him from firing. Because you won't survive. You won't. But that's the big, the big, the big ninny. I don't like him. You see that
3: boss at the beginning of the act. And I mean, if it's act mm-hmm. one, you have to see Hexaghost. and be like, okay, this is about uh, me doing damage fast by the time I get to yeah. the end of this thing. Cause, and and the other thing with Hexaghost that makes him annoying is he punishes. If you go in, his first attack does, I think, 60% of your current health. So the more health you go in with, the more he'll try to take off. Uh, and so yeah. that certainly encourages you to to take some risks with him. Uh, and yeah, I think of the Act one bosses, he's probably the the toughest uh I think it is t- just time eater is the hardest counter when you are building a deck about manipulating cards a lot, especially with silent or defect uh and zero cost cards It's just you're you're actively going into Act three, yeah, hoping yeah. you don't get time eater and the same if you have if you're relying on powers, especially with defect as awakened one, and that's again just kind of an interesting. It's a difference between, you know, they could add five different bosses, but none of them are quite as hard counters to certain types of decks or or something. Oh, one last one is mini boss, but, or elite, but Goblin Knob does feel like the most consequential in just that. Before you encounter the Goblin Knob in Act 1, you're really leery of taking skills, even good ones, because he gets two strength every time you play one and will just murder you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with what's what's already really been said mm-hmm. about the main bosses. Um, the other one that sticks out, and I don't even know if this is an elite. This might not be an elite, but it's the snake enemy that confuses yeah. you on the first yeah, yeah. turn, so it makes yeah. all of your cards um, cost random amounts. Yeah, yeah, random cost uh, amounts. Uh, that's kind of nasty because you know if you if you're doing what i do and you know trying to build uh a deck frequently i i just gravitate towards decks that have a lot of zero cost cards yeah um and yeah that doesn't always work with the uh with the snake
3: yeah and and that is a regular hall some of the hallway boss uh, monsters are just brutal too the um yeah Whatever that shapeless maw, not the sh- but the one that keeps changing attacks every time you hit it. Uh, which is which is a oh, rare yeah. instance yeah. of like, you really don't know what's going to happen next unless you, you give him another whack and then it's like, oh, now he gives <laughs> okay. me a curse that I can't get rid of.
1: Okay. Great. Oh, but do I do I hit him to see if I can make him do less damage or do I just focus on blocking so that I can survive the hit that I know he's going to give me? Yeah, yeah. It's, that's yeah. the one I dread just because that is uh, a, It's yeah. Trixie.
0: Uh, Right, in terms of uh, items that we have access to in the game, we've kind of talked about relics. Those are um, pretty powerful items that that give passive uh, buffs, uh, sometimes nerfs, that modify um, room combat character traits for more or less the entire run. There's different um, conditions under which they have to proc during combat. Some of them may have a limited number of uses and then they'll kind of run out and not be relevant for the rest of the run. But more or less those are are kind of passive ongoing buffs that are going to affect how you play kind of through your entire run. They're gonna tweak things um but potions we haven't kind of mentioned I think partly that's because they kind of, well they're a literary throwaway um <laughs> they literally are thrown um but those are more single use actions and buffs um I always find it interesting when I would get a potion reward and realize oh i've not been using my potions i now have to discard one and i thought that was a really good prompt Mm -hmm. that the game gave me to say no use your potions just just use them like don't wait for elites or bosses necessarily just use them because you're going to get potions very frequently may not always be the potion you want um but you're always going to get plenty of them um so yeah don't be afraid to use them which i thought was a really good way of handling that
2: yeah, for me, the potions reek of BFG syndrome. Where you go, that's a good idea. I'll keep that when I really need it. No, <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, the only there's one time recently I did run earlier today actually, where I had a potion that would attack all enemies. I'm like, oh, I'll wait for using that one when I have more than one. Does that make sense? But like, no. It's what are you talking about? It's it's taking up a slot. You've only got three. Not always, but that's the default number you got. And then it's it, it's just it's just situational. It is situational. I mean, I mm-hmm. had one relic that would heal me every time I used a potion. Yeah. So you know, it's it, it's uh,
3: yeah, it's yeah. It they tend to be uh, underrated. Uh, by, yeah. by beginning players a lot. And uh, yeah, it, it, that impulse. Uh, there are a couple, like the one that brings you back to life with 30% of health if you die, sure. that, that you are just kind of like holding on to. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, one of my favorite relics is the white elephant that gives you makes it so that you get a potion at the end of every combat, because then you mm. have no doubt. It's it's yeah. just like, well, I'd better use one because I'm definitely, you know,
1: yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, no, you're
0: discarding it at the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: And... I like the. Uh, there's a. I. I think it's a card for the silent that uh, just. It's like a one cost card that gives mm-hmm. you a random potion. So you can just use potions, like, because you're not losing anything. You're just gonna get yeah. it back. Um. I. The ones that I have trouble with are the ones that um give you a buff, but then. Nerf you right after. Like, they're the ones, there's ones that will like raise your, raise a stat, uh, by three or four or, or something like that. But then after that one turn, you drop your, uh, strength or dexterity or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I, it, it's not that those are bad, it's that I have trouble gauging when those are okay to use. So I, I kind of shy yeah. away from those. But the rest of the potions um tend to be pretty uh useful.
2: Yeah, there's one that says, All of the cards in your hand are just gonna upgrade them all. now. There you go. Yeah. Have fun yeah. with that. Like <laughs> Ooh, that's nice. And then but dropping that, you've got kind of timing. Timing. Like I always have a whole block block of like basic cards like well, oh, look, it's now done a little bit more than, oh, great, chairs. <laughs> but you want the ones that you bought, the ones you carefully bought and not randomly thought. That looks pretty, which is what you did there, when you the first time playing the game.
3: <laughs> there's something I, the, one of the big things I noticed watching, like, the really, the people who can actually play this game, unlike me, who, like, play it, Ascension 20 and have winning streaks, is very frequently they're, like, picking a potion from that first shop because there's some specific boss coming up that they know their deck is a little weak to. And I think, like, the potion that does 20 damage, that matters a lot less in Act 3. But, you know, when you're getting your snowball rolling in Act 1, that can make all the difference between being able to take on another elite, which gets you this thing, which, you know... uh, The the name of the game is snowballing in power faster than the game does. So, uh, yeah, a well-timed potion can really kickstart that.
0: Yeah, Definitely. Um so, another piece of um forum feedback we have from No Sleep Till Oblivion who says, I purchased this day one on a whim on the PS4 having never played a deck builder before and only dabbling in ro- roguelikes. I was initially frustrated by the steep learning curve and punishing difficulty but persisted, squeezing in runs here and there when I had small window of time for something quick to boot up and play. It was only after unlocking further cards and relics that I started to really understand the mechanics and synergies that allowed me to fully, fully utilize the tools at my disposal, and make better decisions to conquer the Spire. The game requires you adapt to a build based on the cards dealt, as opposed to having one in mind from the onset. Almost 2,000 hours later, Slay the Spire has become one of my favourite games of all time. With the challenging combat, unique character playstyles, and small subtle plot threads, this is a game that is far more than just another roguelike. I think that's possibly a good sort of segue into us talking about some of the cards uh not necessarily individual cards we've kind of touched on uh little bits about them but uh just we need to talk about it's a card game let's talk about the cards um so uh another forum post to sort of ramp into that bloody initiate again we heard from earlier but uh, a little bit more from them says i do have some complaints i found the starting decks oppressively limited and mostly played daily challenges when i started the game It's not the power of the cards that's limiting, it's just that I get so bored of those same old strikes and defends on each character. I'd often take the Pandora's box relic just to change the scenery, even if it cost me. Eventually you get good enough to batter through those tedious starting cards faster. I thought that was an interesting perspective because certainly in the early game I didn't realise how important it was going to be to get rid of certain cards, like the basic strikes and defends, in order to increase the chance of some of the uh higher level, rarer cards um kind of coming up more often in your hand. Makes perfect sense, just didn't think about it initially. Um on that card pool, um Anthony Giovanetti has said that about seventy-five cards for each of the characters, each character has their own uh card deck, um, and about seventy-five cards for each character was the sweet spot Um, that allows for some intentional strategy development through throughout the the game as you construct your deck without it feeling haphazard where cards are either not coming up often enough or you're just not sure if you're going to be able to rely on uh, building a decent deck so uh, i thought that was uh, interesting and that's why the cards kind of hit that um, that sort of number for each character um they are tiered by colour, I think I've mentioned. Um I put down I think the three tiers here, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was more and I'd missed it. Um there's grey, which are referred to as the uh common cards or colourless cards. Um blue are less common than that. Um often at the end of a uh boss or elite fight you'll have you'll have a blue card in amongst um the the elite, sorry you'll have a blue card in amongst uh, some greys to choose from, often that can be the that that's kind of what prompted me to think oh, maybe there's more to this card that I need to pay attention to, rather than just taking sort of default cards that I felt I knew better what to do with. Uh, and then finally, the gold tier, which are um, rarer again, um, and tend to cost a lot more, I think it's fair to say they tend to be sort of multi uh, point uh, cost cards. Um, and sometimes a little bit you need to know what you're doing with them a bit more to justify taking them, I think it's fair to say. Um,
2: the- I just want to go back on mm, the yeah, thing yeah, you mentioned course. earlier. Yeah. I understand completely why it is counterintuitive to throw cards away. Mm. Um, but it is a fundamental component yeah. of deck building games. Absolutely. And it's called trashing. You trash the card, you know, remove it from the game, you just get rid of it because it's not, it's 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 a beginning card, it's yeah. filling up your deck, it's it's basically creating a mess that you, you get you pull your cards out like I've got what I mean you're halfway through act two and like three four of the cards I mean three of four of the cards are are your basic, you know, like oh that that's that's rubbish. I'm yeah. I may yeah. as well just throw away this turn. You don't want that to happen. <laughs> no. And the only way to do that is to the best you can, strategically of course, and tactically, both things is remove them, but depending on what your playstyle is and so, there's some cards that feeds off those cards. Well that
3: the, the, the early uh act one mini boss, the Sentinels, does punish getting rid of cards too early because they junk up your deck with those days cards. And yeah, yeah. if your deck Smaller is too deck small, suffers. it's gonna be all day's yeah. cards very very quickly. So there's always right, you know, there's always something. But in general and yeah it's interesting to look at how other Uh, We're going to probably have to talk very briefly about uh, this game's many, many, many progeny, but Richard Garfield designed one called Rogue Book that has a lot of interesting ideas. You're discovering a map, but one of the big ones is it gives you big rewards for having your deck reach a certain size to counteract that idea of, like, this is about thinning down your deck. And, he, you know, it, it wants to be a game with a big, wild deck uh, where you can't make infinite combos, et cetera, et cetera, but they have to give you really major relics, essentially, uh, for hmm. the natural grain of the deck builder not to lean towards, you know, what Slay the Spire does extremely well. Uh, and, yeah, there's a, an achievement for getting your deck down to five cards, I think. You know, there's, right. there's just that. You're just going to play this hand over and over.
0: Nice. Yeah, I hadn't spotted that one. I hadn't paid attention to the achievements, but as one of our previous uh, forum correspondents said, maybe I should have. Would have given me a clue as to what to kind of aim for.
3: Well, some of them are bonkers. You shouldn't aim for 999 block. (laughs) It's just fun when it
0: happens. (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) Um, So, uh, the the kind of, the reason you have the cards is the turns. um, Playing the turns. And one thing that in particular we've mentioned uh, a few times, but I think it's worth focusing on, was Um, Next turn and uh, intent um, were not originally in the game. Originally, um, next enemy actions were hidden. um, But uh, this was found, because of the roguelike nature of this game, it was found to be frustrating. Um, A lot of players felt that given the high cost of death, um, not knowing what the enemy was going to do and therefore not being able to effectively try, at least to counter it, um, was a frustration. So initially um the ability to see what individual units would do next was added but that required like interacting with each unit and actually like peering in to see what they were doing um and so then the next step was nope, intent is just going to be ever present there are going to be icons above the enemy's head it may not detail specifically what buff debuff whatever they're going to do but there's an icon there that tells you they are going to do one in addition to the damage they're going to do and then you can hover over that or you know click onto that enemy and it will give you a kind of box out a text box of what specifically is going to happen so it really is a case where um the information is there for the player to find it, throughout these uh, combat turns um and the idea was to increase card utility and enable some specific buff and counter options um for for players to make use of um, which I think is a is a nice uh, concession to how difficult that then allows them to make the game. Given that, well, you knew this fifty-one point attack was coming; it was up to you to do something about it. You know, um, I think that's a really interesting way to to do that. We also, as Jesse says, want to talk about legacy. So, is there anything else just before we move on to talking about what happened after this game that we want to cover about this specific game?
3: Infinite amounts, I could say. So sure. I'll just leave we, it we could carry knows. on talking yeah. for
0: another two hours, absolutely. I,
3: I think the four classes are like, again, I think they balance well this idea of um, sort of generic but sweet generous of the ironclad is the warrior, the silent is the rogue, the defect is kind of a mage cleric, and the watcher is kind of a monk. But the the core powers they have don't necessarily like the ironclad uh, can get benefits from hurting himself, which does kind of make sense as a barbarian, uh, but also is kind of there to teach you about exhausting cards from your deck because they mm-hmm. are about uh, burning cards out of the deck. Um, and yeah, I, I I think because one thing I want to talk about a little bit is the mods that like mm-hmm. these are if, you know, these are four very well designed character classes to give you and they each have, you know, at least three kind of deck archetypes that you can wiggle around in and make a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, uh, arrangements with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still occasionally winning in the game with a deck, I've never won, you know, some some key card that's been yeah, yeah. my key card before.
0: Mm hmm. So let's get on to talking about mods. We will lead into that with uh, another piece of forum correspondence. The forum uh, correspondence really came through well in uh, for, for Slay the Spire. So uh, Kez86 has to say, uh, an absolute belter of a de- deck-building roguelite with some wonderful artwork and a score that emboldens the experience. I have spent 68 hours climbing and failing, climbing further and failing again, up and down the spire, and it amazes me that you can continually discover New cards, items and relics to change and adapt the experience so that every run feels slightly different. Now I cannot believe I'm going to say this, but here it goes. After the 60 hour mark, i found the experience starting to become too repetitive with not enough variety in enemy design or variety in playable characters in which to send off on their journey to claim the Spire. That's after 60 hours. Honestly, I adore this game, but for those who feel the same, I can 100% recommend Downfall, a Slay the Spire fan expansion which adds new game modes, new character, bosses, cards, relics, items, etc, etc, etc. I now have over 150 hours in the free fan-made DLC alone. I also recommend for the Kane Rinse team to check this out and include it within their episode as it will open up a lot more discussion in terms of what more could be added to this already brilliant, simple game. So, on that note, Jesse, would you like to tell us about some of the mods, and why uh, we should all be thinking of playing with the mods on?
3: Yeah, no, there. I mean, you could only really do it on a laptop or a Steam Deck, and even on Steam Deck, it's it's gotten better, but it was a little janky for a while. Uh, except for Downfall, because Downfall, if you have the Steam version, you can just download it as a separate app uh, on Steam. So it's definitely the best introduction to all of the mod, and it's it's sort of a, a a compilation of a lot of modders got together. A lot of them had made separate mods that were taking some boss or monster from the game, like uh, the Sneko uh leia's favorite is a really fun character to play and all your cards have these very random elements to them of course uh and you get cards from other classes and you don't even know what they are necessarily um but they took all of those mods and put them together into you know you can play as eight different monsters and when they put it all together they they reconfigured the game so now you are starting at the top of the spire being sent by the heart down to kill the whale uh, and the bosses at the end are the different character classes, so like the Watcher and the Ironclad, and they have a a very uh, in, a clever way of combining the fact that they are playing cards with the fact that they are you know monsters with intents that I will not try to explain. But but they it, it is an incredibly slick package, and if they sold it uh, for 15 bucks as official DLC, you wouldn't blink. It'd be like yeah that that's amazing, great. Uh, so yeah, if you if you own that on Steam, there's absolutely no reason not to try that. If you then get into that, it's a little more of a hassle. As I said, uh, there's some basic mods that I always use of just color, you know, the different icons of the map or different colors, stuff like that. Um, but there's like I think of Beat Saber, where even if Beat Saber isn't necessarily always my favorite rhythm game, it has that Foofsmerver advantage of it has a hundred times more mod songs than every other rhythm game, and and Slay the Spire, I think, has that component of like. I really like Monster Train and there's a couple of mods and they're kind of interesting, but on the slightest part, there's, there's, if whatever anime you like, someone has made a character class out of it. I can guarantee there's a pretty good persona five one that I didn't list here actually for Joker. Uh, It's fiddly because you are going through the different personas, uh, but it's a pretty clever uh, implementation. Of course the art looks great, Uh, but yeah, there's, I generally stick to, uh, you know, I am a scientist. I like to control an experiment. So I usually take some weird character class and play it through the straight vanilla spire. Uh, sometimes there's also people make entirely new acts. Uh, and some sometimes I'll play one of the regular characters through three weird acts or something. Uh, but a few characters, I'll just quickly list a few characters that I would recommend looking up would be the Hierophant who has piety and also uh, greed as his two main mechanics and has a pacifist true ending because if you get monsters piety uh, high enough, they will just convert to your religion. I've never achieved that true ending, though. Uh, The bandit has a like a roll-and-move board game attached, and your cards also affect that board, and it's kind of hilarious and clever. Uh, that one is made by uh, a modern named Vexed, who um, is one of the main people behind Downfall. Also made the Thornton, which is just a psychedelic collection of weird cards. My favorite is Midnight Clock, which does a 100 damage, but can only be the 12th card you play that combat. Uh, so the, the perfect, just you always try to maneuver around and fail. Uh, the seed is kind of like the defect, except instead of orbs, they have vegetables. Uh, and then there's two that I will try to get out there. They're like half made, uh, did it over COVID with the help of Vexed, the, that modder. Uh, the professor in Sylveon, uh, and the professor was sort of the academic from Dream Quest, and Sylveon was just the experiment of... Instead of energy, can you have it be discarding other cards in your hand, a la uh, Race for the Galaxy, a game Chris mentioned uh, as the mechanic? So just, just you know, it is fun to mess around with the mechanics of this game with characters because once you've played through this game enough times, you kind of just know the spire and it's you know what it's about. And and uh, it, as uh, I Vex and I even talked about as a uh, game design class assignment, having students work on Uh, a mod class but the java stuff is it's it's very open and it you know it's very encouraging but definitely requires a certain level of technical skill which is why i hired him to help me
0: (laughs) thank you very much for that whip round of what sounds like as much game as i have already played 10 times over again that that is there for me even once i'd uh, rinse a lot more out out of slay the spire so daunting but yeah it's really uh, exciting to see just how much the community's really sort of come around this game uh, and another way that this game has kind of spread its wings uh, is the board game chris you mentioned this uh earlier on um it was announced in january 2021 as a co-development between megacrit and contention games um it's a cooperative game potentially as well though it can be played with one to four players cooperatively and um, we mentioned uh the kickstarter i said it was very successful um it was funded in 6 minutes after it was launched in November 2022 on the 1st of November i believe um a million dollars was pledged on day 1 uh 3.9 million total dollars slightly more than that um from 29,661 backers during the 18 day fairly short campaign um yeah 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 it's, yep, uh, free,
2: yeah it's it's not up there with frosthaven in terms of money then again, nope. what is? <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, and yes, I have that too, and I'm playing through it right now. Well, not right now, but anyway. um, and really looking forward to it. It's a, like I said, it's a cooperative. It I'm looking at the the Kickstarter page as we're chatting now, and it has a repli- replicates the map beautifully, yeah. uh, and uh, you have various characters that you can play as. Uh, very mirrors very much what goes on on screen but i'll be fascinated to see how they're going to manipulate the, the, the debt building component which in the game it's presented you as a, you know, a random set of cards which are drawn from the ether whereas now you actually have a physical interaction there so i would be like interested to see how they manage the rng aspect of the game yeah. and how you're going to be multiplayer of it because you can't do that right now. The game is not designed that yeah, way no, yet. But here sure they not. have, they, you can now do multiplayer co-op. So I'm very much looking definitely going to be able to get it to the table because thankfully I'm, I'm a member of a very vibrant and uh, well-populated uh, board game group here in London. Mm. So yeah, I, I will be playing it. Reporting back later. For those yeah, it'll be interested to
0: hear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, a whole new aspect to the game. And it, it's worth saying, there has been no sequel to this. I honestly could not find out what Megacrit were were up to next in my, you know, uh, limited but, you know, pretty significant amount of research for this. Um, but when you consider 2017, late 2017, early access rolled into full release a year later, then ports and updates to the game for a couple of years, and uh, a board game coming out, it, it's pretty obvious what megacrit have been spending their time doing i think it's supporting this game and what a a way to support the game um it really is astounding to see how much it's grown and and understand just the impact of this game um over time um our last piece of forum correspondence uh i think is from nick tendo who says i played this on switch last year after searching for a card-based battle game similar to inscription and it did not disappoint aesthetically sts doesn't set the world on fire but its simple gameplay loop was more than enough to keep me hooked the roguelike gameplay and always improving game elements ensured i wanted just one more run before bedtime i somehow beat all four character spires but stopped with the post game content due to the sheer difficulty um inscription mentioned there we have on here a list of it must be nearly a dozen uh other I, roguelike deck I, builders i'm going to set out.
3: a clock to 2 minutes
0: Okay. <laughs> this is like okay. garbage. Time. I'll hold you to it.
3: <laughs> yeah, let's just, let's, I'm going to try to do like an elevator pitch for all of these roguelike deck builders that come after. And then I want Chris to come in and correct or, you know, add the ones I forgot or whatever. But uh, two minutes on the clock. And go. You've got Dungeon Run in 2017. That's a solo adventure in Hearthstone. That's basically kind of a Bosch Roche Dream Quest, uh, made by, uh, partially by Peter Whalen of Dream Quest. You've got Steamroll Quest in 2019, which I mentioned earlier. Not a rogue like a deck builder in the SteamWorld series. Like all those games very interesting mechanically, but probably doesn't take off, because the roguelike works better. You've got Nowhere Profit in 2019, which is basically Slay the Spire meets the Banner Saga, which, you know, sure. Uh, you got Dicey Dungeons in 2019, which is Slay the Spire with Dice. There's a lot of variety. A lot of people really like this game. I don't get a lot out of the Dice aspect, but that is personal taste. Uh, Estrella Six-Sided Oracles is a new Dice one that a lot of my students are playing. You've got my personal Diamond in the Rough, Irish and the Giant from 2020, which is a French game with great art, terrible dialogue, clever grid space, spatial elements, and an innovative no-reshuffle-you-run-out-of-cards-you-die approach to deck building. You've got Monster Train in 2020, which is probably Slay the Spire's most prominent direct competitor now. More of a tower defense structure, lots of customization choices, kind of a bit of an auto-battler, uh, a very, very good game, uh, also available on mobile. You've got Grifflands, which is kind of a role-like deck builder. as a narrative game. It has very Slay the Spire-esque combat, but also has its own negotiation combat system that's very interesting and original. You've got Inscription from 2021, which puts the roguelike deck builder in a diegetic narrative context. It's arguably actually an escape room game where the big puzzle just happens to be a very complicated roguelike deck builder. You've got Fights in Tight Spaces from 2021, a single Avatar deck building tactics game that all looks like that one James Bond movie intro that looks like an iPad ad. Very tight design, Reminiscent of Into the Breach, uh, Alina of the Arena in 2022, uh, and Midnight Suns in 2022, which is, I think, not a roguelike. It's more like XCOM with cards, but you know a, a prominent Marvel uh, superhero franchise game, and I've got five seconds left, so I'm just going <laughs> to sing a little song. La, 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 la. Okay, I'm done.
2: I can add Take two to those. Mm-hmm. I can add two. Well, I add two. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Heretics Fork, cross between Bullet Hell Heaven game. Sorry. Oh right, like, yes. Um, and uh, a deck builder. Uh, that, that that that's a thing that also featured on the Sausage Factory. And another title that came out and consoles uh, very recently last week i think is for the warp which is a um it's a bit like ftl only you have positioning and tactical positioning on on the board and also it, uh, there's actual cards and deck building for that as well also featured on the sausage factory so nice. yeah but there's just countless, countless Yeah there're yeah. very there, there's very countless
3: but there's also a lot of like good like i tried to stay abreast of this one subgenre and uh I don't have to look at the bad ones like there's enough really <laughs> no. inf- there's also <laughs> yeah. Nadir no. there's also One Step from Eden like th- these are interesting yeah. games that have their own unique thing going on and yeah I think deck builder might graduate from subgenre to genre like like you know FPS yeah. did
2: yeah. yeah yeah I just want to point out though the, the, the key thing the reason the reason why this is is that cards are the earliest kind of form of programming. <laughs> it sounds a bit strange, but I've spoken to the Magic the Gathering um, designer who explained this to me, that I did, this is many years ago, 15, maybe 20 years ago, where I was trying to figure out why, how is this cascade effect working with just symbols on cards? I said, what's programming? It's computers. It's, it's switches. You it's get the, the cause and effect. It's, in visual form you have certain conditions and these conditions are met then this thing will happen on a provision this condition exists whether it's ongoing or you just you know triggered it and it's programming it's really very transparent and that that is why there's so many games that are developers that are so drawn to this because wait this is what i'm doing <laughs> and it's just that's why And think i can make this into a game Talk about path of least resistance, and that's 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 what's going on here. It sounds really cynical, and I'm sorry. No, no, is, no. That's a very
3: interesting because I think it it ties up, it lines up with you know why do people make physics based shooty collision detection games? Because physics is a thing that programmers want to do naturally, but it's also a thing that we li- like. You don't have to be good at math to play a deck builder well. Like, maybe there's, you know, the numbers in Slay the Spire aren't that big, right? It, and it's trying to, like, in other games, do you even better with this, uh, where it is almost like a recipe, you know, you can intuit, like, when you're playing a deck builder, oh, I need a little more of this, or I don't got enough of that, but you're not necessarily, uh, being really good at math does not necessarily mean you will play these games better, uh, because it, just like being really good at calculating physics doesn't mean you'll catch a fly ball better, a lot of it. Uh, does get reduced down to intuition because it's too complex to truly calculate uh, on the fly when you're playing it. Although, although you see guys like Jorbs, like the streamers who play at Ascension 20, and clearly they've got a mathematical mind that, that I do not. And that is a big part
0: of why they're able to do that. Excellent. Well, thank you for rounding all of that up. It's fair to say that, um, that. Some of those games may well end up getting their own Canon rinse issue in the future, but not all of them will. So I think it's worth just acknowledging the impact that something like Slay the Spire and the games we talked about that sort of preceded it in this subgenre, but also kind of making this subgenre what it is, uh, the importance that, that they have and that Slay the Spire has had is uh, really striking. Um, so. The last thing we do before we give our own summaries, we have our final pieces of community feedback. On the day of recording, from the Cane uh, Rin's Twitter account, we send out a request for three-word reviews, and you served up several to us. So I wonder if, Leah, you could start with the first of them, please.
1: Uh, Red Fox M 18 says, top 10 deck builder.
0: Our own Tom Coilfeld says, cards against du- demonity. Cantonaz uh, Ghost says,
2: deal me in. Bearfish Pie says, so many shivs.
1: <laughs> Grief Influence says, cartomancy simulator 2019.
3: Jasper
0: Lino says, another try? Yes. Uh, William Gardner, a man after my own heart, says, block block block.
2: Kez86 says, corrupt card." connecting
1: and nick tendo says one more run one more run we
0: will be able to get to after we give our own summaries so uh again leah would you kick us off with your summary of slay the spire please
1: yeah um so if if i've learned anything from the past uh couple of hours i think it's been that you know there there are A lot of different ways to appreciate this game. Um, Mine has been pretty basic. I've mostly stuck to the game itself um, without much looking into things like mods or uh, related games or anything like that. But I have uh, played since I got into uh, Slay the Spire initially, I have been a little bit more open to. Um, games that are sort of related, I mentioned across the Obelisk earlier. Uh, also played Inscription uh, when that was a a going concern. Um, and you know, I I I think that this is something I'm going to keep on my Steam deck because it's really good to just kind of have and and have available so that you know if you have. 10 minutes, or if you have two hours, you can sit down and you can just kind of start Pushing your way through and uh, and time just sort of flies by. So I definitely recommend this. As we've mentioned, uh, it is available if you have either PlayStation Plus or um, Game Pass on the Xbox, uh, and it's pretty inexpensive. I think on uh, Steam as well. I can confirm that it runs perfectly on the Steam Deck. I mean, no, I guess no reason why it wouldn't. But uh, it's it's really really good on that. Uh, is is something that I found but wherever you want to get a hold of it i i do recommend trying this even if you're not typically interested in um this this overall type of game i wasn't either and it really stuck with me anyway so uh yeah give it a shot and see what you think and uh yeah you yeah, never know maybe maybe it'll lead you into a bunch of other uh games in the genre as well
0: nice thank you very much uh yeah yeah i can echo much of that i have uh i think even less experience with um, the specific genre, with card game, games in general than you do, Leah. Um, but uh, yeah, th- th- this game is one that I will keep on my Steam Deck. It's one that I imagine I will absolutely dive into when I have a commute or something like that, that I just want to be able to do something that, you know, it's not going to matter if it's noisy around me or anything. I'll be able to focus on the game nonetheless. Um, and yeah, a real a real eye-opener. Um, you know there's there's plenty of games that we've mentioned as forebears or successors uh, to to this game that are on the table for me now in a way that I didn't necessarily know they were um, and that's that's obviously a criticism of myself uh, as much as anything but I, I do love games like this that are that popular to kind of break outside of the usual sort of genre fan type uh, mentality that I know can affect certainly myself uh, you know, uh, and I imagine they're for other people, not to tarnish anyone. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it was an absolutely fantastic time. Uh, a, a mere 26 hours put into this game. But as as we've heard there, there's 10 times that to be had if I really wanted to. If only I had the time. Um, so, Chris, could we also hear from you, please?
2: Yes, this plate. Well, sorry, the the Spire has a special place in my heart because mm-hmm. A, I discovered it in inverted commas <laughs> and B, I've been following it ever since, as I, as I stated earlier in the show. What really encourages me about the success of Slay Spire yeah. is how it's very much a gateway title to a genre I was already familiar with before yeah. it appeared. Um, and I'm still very much a fan of that. And it's you know it's probably not appropriate to say in this show, but it's the where that's gone in the tabletop board game realm is incredible, and there's there's some like very very successful games built off this system now. I'm looking at you, Terraforming Mars, and um you know and it's just wonderful seeing the both sort of like formats or platforms are sort of like going off and one and doing their own thing within this system, which is deck building. So. Thanks, Slay the Spire, for doing what you continue and did do. So, yeah, that's it for me on that one.
0: Perfect. Thank you very, very much. And last, but by no means least, Jesse, would you like to round us out with a summary, please?
3: I mean, it's clear I like cards. Uh, I like I like Snoopy and I like cards. These are two things everyone who knows me knows about me. Uh, I teach a class on traditional card game literacy and design that, if hopefully, I will be teaching multiple versions of because it's my favorite class. Uh, I yeah, I, it, whatever they have going on, you know that I'm not much of a chess player. I'm not much of a shooter player. I enjoy these things, but for whatever reason, uh, cards are intuitive for me um and yeah i've been delighted you know it it is just like this game is weirdly like beat saber in that way of i can't even say if it's my favorite of the genre but it's the one i've played the most of and it's certainly in that argument of the the best one even though it's also kind of the the trunk of the tree at this point um and yeah, I think, as I said, I think in terms of metagame stuff, other games have have grown on it in pretty objective ways. But I think in terms of the actual in-game experience, that it is just as uh, encompassing in its in its vanilla version as you know Monster Train or any of these other games. Um, and as I said, because, you know, I'm sure there's people who, you know, haven't even played Vanilla Skyrim in a decade, right? Or just so into the mods of that, that's its own game. But there is this thing where a game becomes beyond itself, where it is just sort of a almost a platform in the way that Minecraft is. Uh, and while Slay the Spire is certainly not at that point, you know, they are both built on Java, I guess. So that's, you know, pretty open. Uh, and yeah, just the opportunity to get to mess around with mods myself, uh, which is not something I, I do a lot of, but, you know, you play enough of a game like this and you do any sort of game design and, and you're going to start getting ideas, which is exactly what got me into Magic the Gathering back in 1994 in the first place was that, you know, first card game I played that made me feel like I was designing a game. Um, and mm-hmm. I think Slay the Spire actually has some of that same spark to it where, even people who don't play card games themselves not only get a sense of you know of of the tactics of playing within the combat but that broader sense of like you're looking for those you're you're thinking like a game designer right you're looking for these synergies you're looking to it is a a, a game about breaking the game uh which a lot of my favorite games are uh so yeah this and baba is you pretty much the same game
0: <laughs> there's a comparison i wasn't expecting right well All that remains is for me to thank Chris, Jesse and Leah, our editor Jay, all of our correspondents in short and long form, our patrons and, of course, every single one of you for listening. Next time, in issue 599, Leon leads a team of intrepid mech pilots once more into the breach.